Hi everyone, welcome back to TTT, the Talking Transport Transformation Podcast, brought to you by Tumi, the Transformative Urban Mobility Initiative. In many cities in the Global South, rapid urban growth results in a very dense urban population. As a response reaction to limited, or inadequate, and increasingly expensive formal public transport provision, unregulated transport services were developed to meet the quick increase in demand for urban transport. Today, there are three types of informal vehicles in Eastern Africa. Motorcycle taxis, so-called boda-bodas, three-wheelers called tuk-tuks, and minibuses, also called matatuks. The level of coordination varies, meaning that some vehicles operate door-to-door on demand, whereas others are more fixed, serving arterial routes. Still, none of them are run by government. Thus, regulations and their enforcement are interpreted differently. Now that a global transport transformation is existential to combat climate change, we must find the right implementations for decarbonizing transport worldwide. Within formal transport, representing up to 90% of the transport supply in many African cities, there's a great need in reducing the emissions caused by that system. Therefore, in today's episode, my colleague Caroline is talking to Tom Courtright, a student of transportation in Eastern Africa. He's the research director at the Association for Electric Mobility and Development in Africa, as well as the co-founder of Lubianza, a research group in Kampala focusing on Boda Bodas. Conducting all this research and living in East Africa for over a decade himself, he has great knowledge and first-hand experience of informal transportation. Tom gives us exciting insights into his research on transport in Eastern Africa to learn more about the different kinds of vehicles, the policies behind the system, responsibilities of different stakeholders involved, as well as approaches to move electrification forward in these countries. So now, let's listen in. So, hi Tom and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today on this episode of Talking Transport Transformation. We're very glad to have you here today to share a few insights with our listeners. Would you mind introducing yourself quickly? Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Carolyn. So my name is Tom Courtright. I'm the research director at the Association for Electric Mobility and Development in Africa, IEMDA. I'm also the co-founder of Lubyanza. It's a research group with two boda drivers in Kampala and Paul Mukwaya from Akureyri University, looking at boda bodas, which are motorcycle taxis, primarily in Kampala, Uganda. I also do other work with Energy for Impact and uh, some academic groups. That sounds great. So let's get right into questions. Let's talk a little bit about the informal transport system. So to kick off, could you describe to us what does the informal transport system in Eastern Africa look like now? Absolutely. So while it varies from country to country, the three most common modes of informal transport in Eastern Africa, ranging from smallest to largest, are motorcycle taxis, known as bodabodas in many countries, tuk-tuks, uh, which go by several local names, also known as rickshaws to some of you, which are three-wheelers, and then minibuses, and in some cases, larger buses, which go by, again, many names, but most commonly known as matatus uh, and so on. So, for example, in Nairobi, Kenya, you have uh, huge numbers of matatus who've long had a very strong grip over transportation within Nairobi for the majority of people living here. In Kampala, Uganda, you have huge numbers of motorcycle taxis to the point that from a recent study, you know, modal share amongst uh, boda is now the same as for minibuses, which is wild to think about when you keep in mind that a boda is only carrying one or two passengers while a minibus carries 14 to 17. 
In Tanzania, for example, you have a lot more tuk-tuks and in general along coastal areas. So even up into Somalia, there's a lot of three-wheeler tuk-tuks. So they look very different uh, across these three countries. Uh, ownership is scattered and diverse. Historically, in a lot of these places, these vehicles have been owned by somebody, uh, somebody middle class or, or higher up for the larger vehicles. And these vehicles are then rented out to drivers for the day or for the week or for longer periods for them to then make a minimum amount to pay back to the owner and then operate for their own profits and to pay for fuel and, and sometimes maintenance, depending on the arrangements. This has changed somewhat in recent years, especially for the smaller vehicles, the motorcycle taxis. So these motorboats have now become heavily financed by asset financing companies, groups like Watu, Tugende, Mogo, who offer riders slightly higher weekly payments in exchange to gain ownership over the vehicle after around a year and a half to two years. And this has become very popular in especially urban areas in Eastern Africa. Generally speaking, most of these vehicles are sort of quasi-legal. So they're not, you know, they're informal. They're not owned by government. There are light regulations around them. And there are some cases where on paper, um, there are, you know, significant regulations around safety, the number of passengers that can be carried and so on and so forth. But the reality is that enforcement is minimal in most cases. So, for example, in Uganda, technically all passengers are legally required to wear a helmet, but policemen in Kampala have never enforced this rule. And, and I think most of them are probably unaware that it exists. And certainly passengers and, and motorcycle drivers are unaware that it exists. So uh, that's kind of the definition of informal transport in many ways, right? Living in that gray area between what is on the books and what the reality is as shaped by the demands of passengers, um, the search for job opportunities uh, by owners, uh, rather by drivers and by conductors, in the cases of like Matatus, as well as sometimes a desire for kind of a political base, because in many cases, larger fleets of vehicles have been owned by politicians or politically aligned people. And this is also what has kind of prevented uh, more effective regulation of the sector. So there's a lot to get into there, but yeah, happy to take this in any in any direction. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for pointing that out. It's very interesting to hear about the backstory and also the differences across the countries and different cities. And may I ask a little follow-up question to that? So you described that this system is informal. And does it also work as a public transport system? So how does that work? Do people just command a vehicle to come because there are no schedules of fixed routes or other schedules and official stops? How does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, asking about whether it's uh, public gets us into the, the realm of tricky definitions. So insofar as the, at least Americans, tend to define public being government-owned, they are not public. But in terms of serving the public, they are absolutely public. So that's why I know some folks recently have been pushing for calling it popular transportation, for example, because it's popularly used, created, owned, etc. So this differs very much for these three types of vehicles. So for motorcycle taxis, historically, and still the majority of trips 
Our drivers are typically based at a one location called Stage in many countries. goes by many names, Shimo, meaning whole in Kenya, Kijiwe in Tanzania. But these are just intersections or shady places where drivers congregate. Um, they form groups. Sometimes they form SACOs, uh, meaning savings and loans, community groups. Uh, but so you can go to the local stage and pick a driver from there. And that creates this trust, right? And it's a, it's a communal thing. It means if you get a guy from the stage, if anything happens, you know where he's located and the other men at the stage will, you know, theoretically hold him to account. The other way to pick one up has historically been somebody passing by on the road. That's actually the inspiration for the name Lubyanza. So in Luganda, uh, which is the language most commonly spoken in central Uganda and Kampala, Lubyanza refers to somebody, a boda boda, who is moving on the road or is not, does not have a stage. And the idea here is that if you pick somebody on the road and they're going in the same direction as you want to go, then the trip might be cheaper. And so sometimes it's more attractive for that reason. And sometimes people even avoid the stage boda. And the calculation here is that if you pick somebody from the stage, he's thinking, I, because unfortunately it's 99% male, uh, he's thinking, I will take you to this destination and then I will have to drive back without somebody, meaning I'm burning extra fuel. And so they increase the cost. But if you grab somebody from the street, somebody who's Lubyanza, it should be cheaper. The trade-off is safety, right? If you pick somebody from the street, uh, you don't know where they're from. You don't know where they're based. Uh, there might not be any way to trace them afterward. Their license plate, it's not clear that they'll be easy to register. The police are not well trusted here to follow up on these sorts of things uh, without payment. So that's generally speaking how boaters operate, right? They pick people up and take them directly to their destination, door-to-door services. They also do delivery trips. Um, so increasingly, they do deliveries for restaurants. They're getting on apps and so on. So recently, there's been apps like Safe Boda in Uganda led the way, and then Uber, Bolt, and others followed, allowing you to call a Boda from your phone, right? Use an app. Same idea as for the car. So the, this is taken off in cities like Nairobi, particularly, right? A very tech-enabled place, much more so than neighboring cities. But as we know, ride-hailing business models have their issues, and it's kind of unclear how long that will last or how well it will work, but it's a, it's a trade-off that works better in certain places rather than other in terms of prioritization around the cost of a trip and around safety. So then going on to tuk-tuks, tuk-tuks are, are very interesting to me because there's very curious hybrid. So tuk-tuks uh, have a driver in the front and then a bench that should hold three behind him. And sometimes he can add a passenger on the bench next to him. Now, what's interesting about tuk-tuks is that sometimes they are on arteries, and sometimes those arteries are pretty standard. But in many cases, those arteries are not standardized. But regardless, when you'll be on a sort of main road and you'll see the tuk-tuk come down this road, you'll know the direction he's going on. You know it'll be towards town or towards some sort of general area that's well-known. And you'll get in and join other passengers and pay a lower fare than you would have paid a boda boda. And so in Tanzania, for example, this has caused competition between the two because tuk-tuks are more favored by women, by elder folks, uh, for children, because they are safer, certainly assumed to be safer, and I believe the statistics back that up. They also are shaded, right? So in the hot sun or if there's rain. So they're preferred for, for a number of reasons. 
The one thing that they don't do in comparison to Boda Bodas is they don't beat the traffic because they're still like a meter and a half wide. So where motorcycle taxis can cut through any traffic, tuk-tuks cannot. So like I said, tuk-tuks offer arterial services, but they also offer door-to-door services. And because the tuk-tuk is larger and of course thus has lower fuel efficiency than a motorcycle, that means that that tuk-tuk, if you're doing door-to-door service and you're a single passenger, it'll be more expensive than a boda. So that's what's in the mind of many passengers. Keep in mind, these are very low-income places, so the cost of the trip is very important to many people. Finally, the matatus, the buses, the minibuses, these run on arterial routes. They run fairly standardized routes. Now, regulation around those routes looks different everywhere. So what happened here in Kenya is that there was a set of rules put in place about 18 years ago now, I think, called the Michuki Rules, named after the transport minister at the time. And there's a, you know, a couple of things like having seatbelts and so on, but part of this too was requiring all matatus to join SACOs. So again, these are savings and community groups. And basically the SACO would be an organizing force along a particular route so that all of the matatus along that route would be part of the same SACO. And so in that way, they've been uh, regulated here. And in Tanzania and in Uganda, they're also assigned particular routes, but assigned by who is what differs. So there used to be a group in Uganda um, called the Uganda Transportation Owners and Drivers Association, and they would dole out these routes. But today, that group has disappeared because, uh, frankly, it was, um, yeah, a little, a little too corrupt and politically entangled. But it also meant that the destruction of that group meant that the, the regulations went away and competition for these routes increased and power to assign uh, matatus to these routes changed. So that being said, while they do run arterial routes, when you have couple of people on board or one person on board who's slightly off the given route, or maybe there is, you know, road construction, or maybe there's traffic, they can change route where they'd like to, but they typically run particular routes. So yeah, you have motorcycle taxis doing purely door-to-door service. You have tuk-tuks doing door-to-door and arterial service, and you have matatus, which are running purely arterial services. Thank you for detailed descriptions. Very interesting to hear that the different vehicles also function as on-demand vehicles. And I think it's very important to understand the current mobility patterns and people's travel behaviors to, based on these requirements, build the right approaches that are applicable to the mobility systems within the cities. So you already touched on some issues that an informal transport system might face Could you dive deeper into the chances and challenges in improving this system? More broadly, sure. So there's a lot of challenges, uh, clearly, because the systems haven't changed drastically over the last 30 to 70 years that they've been around, depending on the type. Basically, they've become heavily politicized in many places, especially places they've been around for longer. So to give you an example of Boda Bodas in Uganda, when... They started off as bicycles along the border. So boda boda comes from the term border, border. So these guys were bicycles who were taking people across the Ugandan-Kenyan border, where there was like a five-kilometer gap picking people up. And they became motorcycles in the 90s. Somebody started importing motorcycles, and then they all switched to motorcycles. 
the numbers started really increasing, especially with the dropping of uh, tariffs on imports and the creation of cheap Indian, some Chinese motorcycles. But what then also happened was that, you know, in Uganda, the economy was in disarray because of the, the Bush war that happened there from 1979 or so to 1986. And then there was ongoing conflict in the North. And so it was still a recovering economy in many ways. And so the creation of jobs is obviously very important. And when it was clear that guys were kind of creating jobs for themselves by just getting a hold of a motorcycle, typically through somebody who had bought like a small fleet of a couple, politicians saw this and jumped on the opportunity. And so they started doing these like giveaways and going to communities and saying that they've created jobs by giving, you know, five, 10, 15 motorcycles out to young men. Well, the problem was that it created these really strong political links then. And by 2005 in Uganda, there's about to be the first multi-party elections in a while. And so the president who was then president and is still president, President Museveni, part of his campaign promises, he said that he was going to drop taxes on Boda Bodas. So they would no longer have to pay like a small fee to the city councils where they were operating. And after he said that, Boda Bodas across the country used that to protest and in some cases riot against any attempt to do so. So what you can see is that the government itself kind of manufactured this kind of legally gray area. And there was a, a series of associations created. There was another one just created last month. Um, but from 2007, then in 2010, now a month ago, um, the government has had a pretty direct hand in creating, sometimes indirect hand in creating Boda associations that are supposed to, you know, regulate uh, or to give a voice to the Boda chapters. But then they end up being used by political elites to repress protests or other such things. And then there's so many Boda now. So in Kampala, you have upwards of 200,000 that they're also viewed as a huge vote bank. You know, I mean, they're all they're mostly providing for families, they're mostly men in their in their early 30s who have uh, families. So all of that means that there's a lot of disincentives for government to properly regulate them. For example, in 2020, there was a four-month lockdown on Boda Bodas uh, when COVID came along. And the first day that they were allowed to carry passengers again, the city government attempted to introduce a raft of reforms, including a ban on Boda Bodas within the central business district, the, the downtown area, which also happens to be the colonial core of the city. So... This was announced, and by lunchtime of that first day, the police barricades had dropped because uh, a lot of motor drivers went there and talked to the policemen, and passengers needed to get into the CBD, and the policemen eventually just let them go in. And it wasn't for several days afterward that uh, the government admitted that their plan had been delayed by a few months and has still not been reattempted. So that's that's those are the kind of challenges from the regulatory perspective across a lot of countries, but definitely worse in Uganda in, in some respects. In Rwanda, they've had much more success. So in Rwanda, you have uh, Boda are now required to carry passenger helmets. Passengers are required to uh, wear the helmet. But most importantly, they actually do um, because the government has a very strong grip over the country. The security forces have a very strong grip. Um, and so Motari, as Bodabodas are called there, very much fear the police seeing them uh, with a passenger not wearing a helmet and um, confiscating their motorcycle for several days and, you know, reducing their ability to, to buy food to feed their families. So 
Um, in Rwanda, they're much more successful, um, partly just because of the, the power of the state there and the centrality of the state. Uh, in terms of other kind of, you know, private sector approaches to improving informal uh, transport, there's been a number of different attempts. So I think, you know, the most famous ones are ride hailing and more recently e-mobility. So ride hailing, also known as on-demand or ride sharing, whatever you want to call it, um, has been around in the region for informal transit since about 2015, really. And these attempts thought, okay, we will, like SafeBoat in Uganda, for example, they said, okay, great, we'll introduce um, a group that will, uh, that will provide helmets for the passengers as well, which would be a first. We will have them do road safety training and so on and so forth. And uh, by this, we will, you know, improve passenger usage of helmets because right now in Uganda, uh, and it was at the time as well, it's 1%, right? Passengers do not wear the helmets, unfortunately. And it, it was it was very well intentioned, and you know, 2017 through 2019, early 2020, um, they were doing fairly well, and passenger helmet usage had increased to somewhere between 20, 20 to 30 percent, which is a huge improvement over the one percent that previously existed. But then they hit COVID, and the people didn't want to share helmets, and police in some cases enforced this. Many voters have reported police stopping them from uh, giving their, the, the helmet to the passenger, giving the passenger a helmet. They said, oh, you know, this isn't clean, whatever. The Ministry of Health didn't do anything to dissuade that idea. And the usage of helmets amongst safe boat passengers has since plummeted back down, unfortunately. Um, however, you know, there are some benefits that remain. For example, traceability. So if, like I mentioned, if you get a guy from the stage, okay, great. You know where he's from. You probably live in that area, so you might know him fairly well. In fact, what happens a lot of the time is you, you know your local guy and you have numbers for Boda Bodas. So I myself have over 60 contacts for Boda Boda drivers. That's also because I do the research. But whenever you go somewhere and you live there for a bit, you, you know the guys in your area, and that's very important. Anyway, and so uh, if you're doing it on demand, though, you don't know where the guy's from, but the company is tracing it. They know that you two were paired. They know that, you know, he, he came and, you know, reported picking you up and whatnot. And so this improves things, especially for nighttime travel, especially for women, right? So that improvement has remained for the ride-hailing apps. Now, we all kind of know the issues with ride-hailing apps, right? Which is that, uh, how do you get a commission out of that? How do you take a commission out of that? without either increasing the cost of the rides, which Uber is now doing in, in America and elsewhere because the model was never really proven to work otherwise, or uh, reducing the driver's earnings, right? How do you take a commission? So, well, I could get into that, but basically the idea is you need to, you need to be able to improve the driver's kind of efficient use of the day. He needs to be taking more trips, longer trips, making more income, for him to then, you know, pay that 10, 15, 20 for, in the case of Uber and Bolt, 25, 30% commission. He needs to be able to pay that commission at the end of the day uh, or on each trip and still make as much money or more money. So that is, that is a very difficult thing to do. And a lot of these folks have run into trouble doing that. And it works better, obviously, in, in places where passengers are willing to pay more and, and pay more for that safety so that's it from those two angles. In terms of e-mobility, I mean, the basic idea behind e-mobility is that, A, obviously a lot of external benefits, right? Uh, no more greenhouse gases, which 
You know, right now, um, to be honest, you know, Europe and, and America are really, really ragging on Africa for this, which I, I find to be deeply hypocritical, considering uh, who is historically responsible for these emissions. But anyway, you know, obviously we don't want greenhouse gas emissions one way or another. More importantly here, I think, is local air pollutants, right? I mean, you walk down the street, there's not a lot of strong regulation around um, air pollutants coming from vehicles. So reducing or eliminating those is fantastic. Improves the health of people living in these cities, which is always a good thing. And then for the driver, the other key thing is there's a couple of limited health benefits, like no vibrations from it. But the main thing is that, well, they're no longer paying for fuel, which is hugely expensive. And they're instead paying for either uh, charging the battery at home, which is typically around 10 times cheaper, five to 10 times cheaper, or it might be uh, battery swapping. So here I'm really talking mostly about, about Boda Bodas, about motorcycle taxis, um, because that's where these systems have been introduced. So for e-mobility to you know, play this positive role and improve the system, basically you have a set of choices. You either do this battery charging at home, which makes even more savings for the driver, right? And the driver can go home with more money, which is a great thing. The drivers don't make much money, right? I mean, in Uganda, they're making maybe $80 a month in profit. Nairobi, it's higher, a little bit over 200, but it's not a lot of money. And uh, so either they charge the battery at home, which is great in terms of that, but the problem is then that the battery is always the most expensive component of any electric vehicle, right? And so the reason that two-wheelers are particularly a good case for electrification is because they're small. And so the battery doesn't have to be too big. But regardless, if you're doing charging at home, that means that the battery is a part of the motorcycle and the driver has to pay for that battery, which adds an extra around $1,000 to the price of these motorcycles. And these motorcycles typically cost about $1,000. So you've doubled the cost of the motorcycle, right? So that's not an easy proposition. And you might have even more than doubled it because that battery needs to last the entire day. So it might be $2,500, $3,000, which is quite a bit more than they're used to paying. And so what a lot of folks have been doing right now, folks like Zembo, Ampersand, uh, EFTD in Nigeria, uh, M Auto and Benin and Togo are doing is that they're setting up battery swap stations. And this way, uh, the battery remains owned by the company and the driver's only paying off the cost of the motorcycle, which is about the same or in some cases, even slightly lower cost than the regular ICE fossil fuel vehicles. And then basically the driver rolls up to a swap station, takes out uh, his old battery, puts in a fresh one that's just been charged uh, and drives off. And this means that the charging time is about, you know, I mean, the, the time for swapping, for re-energizing is basically the same as a fossil fuel petrol station, which is fantastic because it stays very convenient. Otherwise they would have to wait for like an hour or two hours in the middle of the day, missing out on passengers and so on, which they don't want to do. And then the other advantage is that uh, the cost of the, the motorcycle is lower, right? So that's typically being paid on a financed weekly basis. In some cases, they're being bought up front. And that's, that's a great thing. It's just not super easy for the company because then what they have to do is they have to amortize the cost of that battery, right? They have to pay off the cost of that battery uh, within the cost of the battery swap, which means that the cost of a driver using battery swap is going to be higher than a driver who's charging at home on a weekly basis. So basically it's one of these trade-offs between capital expenditures, upfront capital expenditures, and then operating expenditures. So I think I've gone on quite a bit about that, but that's kind of the general outlay of regulation, uh, ride hailing, and e-mobility in terms of where they're at for informal transport.
Yeah, wow. That was a very multidimensional answer. So there's many ways to improve the system, like the political way and pulling the issue out of the gray zones and then the social way in improving helmet usage and, of course, the economic spectrum and helping the vehicle owners to create associations. And I would like to dive deeper into the ecological improvement that you pointed out in your last points, the electrification. So in our efforts to decarbonize transport, electrification is one of the key enablers to reduce emissions and improve air quality. You've already started stating how far they have come, but what is the current state and environment of e-mobility and informal transport in Eastern Africa right now? Sure, yeah. So like I said, there's been a lot of focus on two-wheelers. So from the companies I know of, um, over 120 across the continent, a lot, a, a lot of them are in Kenya. Kenya is, is loved by investors and startups alike, strong business environment and a strong economy and so on. But basically there's been a strong emphasis on two-wheelers. So maybe around a half, a third to a half of all of the e-mobility startups in Africa are, are two-wheeler startups. There's only a handful of tuk-tuk startups. There are fewer tuk-tuks on the road in general. So that kind of lines up. And there's even fewer still bus startups. And there's more bus startups coming up these days. There's a new one every week, it looks like. But basically, the two-wheeler startups, right, the motorcycles, typically. So you have, uh, the fleets are not large right now, right? So in Uganda, there's maybe 400 electric motorcycles on the road. Rwanda, about 1,000. Um, Kenya, maybe 500. One rather interesting and unique case is Linkall in Tanzania. So Linkall is a Chinese company. So many of these companies are, you know, Western founded, et cetera, going the kind of venture capital route, right? Raising equity, working on creating a better product after initially using an off-the-shelf Chinese uh, vehicle. But Linkall in Tanzania is just a Chinese company that has imported uh, scooters, electric scooters to Tanzania. And they're... In general, in East Africa and in general in Anglophone Africa, there is very little personal use of scooters or two-wheelers. It's typically all motorcycle taxis. Instead, it's Francophone Africa where, Francophone West Africa, where there's personal use of these. And Lincoln brought in these little personal scooters and sold them for very, very cheap, is selling them for very, very cheap, around $700. And they've been very successful at it. And they've, you know, put uh, anywhere between four to 8,000 of these on the road. And it's quite amazing, particularly because that did not exist previously. That being said, it's not informal transport as such because it's personal transport. But regardless, they created a market where there was none. There, there were very, very few petrol uh, personal uh, scooters in Tanzania, and they've created that market. And so I'll be very curious to see if that, if that works elsewhere in East Africa. In terms of two-wheelers, like I mentioned, you have a lot of motorcycle companies who've been doing this. So Zembo is in Uganda, Ampersand is in Rwanda and Kenya. And then in Kenya, you've got 15, 20 companies, but none of those companies have gotten too large yet. I think the biggest might have a fleet of 100, 150 motorcycles. Most of them are still kind of iterating on their motorcycle and rolling out pilots. It's a very capital intensive business. And so, you know, it requires uh, quite a bit, um, hundreds of thousands, millions, of dollars to, you know, even just have a fleet of like 50 to 100 of these. So it's, it's a very, very capital intensive. 
So that's it on kind of the motorcycle side. On the tuk-tuk side, again, there's not too many. So there's a few folks who've been doing some retrofitting, uh, like Auto Truck in Kenya, and now they've moved into Tanzania. There's an interesting company called Tri, uh, who are operating in Tanzania, who've been bringing in electric ajajis is what they're called there, but electric tuk-tuks. And they've been selling out their first, uh, or rather their like fourth or so iteration of the product, but it's looking pretty good. And then you have a handful of bus companies, like I mentioned. So to be honest with you, I was personally very doubtful about the prospects for electric buses in East Africa because of the cost, right? So like I mentioned, the battery is the most expensive part, as we all know. And then a bus has to have a massive battery, right? So it's it seemed like it was going to be, you know, more than a decade away. But there's a company called Busigo that's come in and has showed a very interesting model and has been working with the SACOs, with the groups that run those uh, Matatu routes in Nairobi. They offer the vehicle charging, maintenance, and all of this. And they've been pretty successful so far. Um, They're rolling out another 15, I think, of these buses in the next couple of months here. Um, So that's been very, very interesting to see. And they're targeting, of course, the informal transport sector. There's a couple of folks who've tried to go for the public bus sector, which, like I mentioned, is uh, or maybe implied, was very, very small, right? Uh, buses here are, are 90% or more informal across the region. But a couple of companies are going for that public bus sector. Um, so Rome, formerly known as Opibus, has been doing that. In Uganda, there's um, Kira Motors or Chira Motors, and they have been... Uh, developing motors, uh, buses. So Chido was the first African-designed electric bus back in 2015 or so. Um, and they've since got significant backing from, from government to roll this out. So that's what it looks like in terms of the, the bus and uh, motorcycle and three-wheeler segment. There's also, of course, some folks rolling out passenger cars. So Nopea Ride was operating here in Nairobi for a while, and I think at their peak they had around uh, 90 vehicles, and they were bringing in used Nissan Leafs. Uh, unfortunately, they um, recently have declared bankruptcy. Not an easy business, and certainly not an easy business to be a early starter in, because they've been here since, I think, 2016, 2017. There's other companies like Drive Electric that are also bringing in passenger four-wheel vehicles. Part of the issue that everybody is facing is how do you source these? Because like I said, the cost is a problem. And the majority of passenger four-wheeler vehicles in East Africa are used, right? Like 90% or something are brought in used. And if they're brought in used, that means that they're quite cheap, five to $10,000. So trying to bring in an electric vehicle at that price is very difficult, especially when you think about the more traditional source of using European or so vehicles or Japanese. So the Nissan Leaf has been a a popular favorite to bring in used Nissan Leafs, in some cases new Nissan Leafs. What I'm personally waiting to see will happen is that there are now a number of much more affordable EV four-wheelers coming out of China. So BYD, Dongfeng both have much more affordable vehicles, less than $10,000 new, right? Um, and I would, I think that's probably a better route to go because the problem with using used electric vehicles is that A, their battery capacity is already diminished, right? And there's no good system yet to, to replace those batteries. And in general, I mean, why should Africa be the, be the dumping ground for the world's vehicles, right? So 
I'm waiting to see more expansion from from Chinese companies in terms of four wheelers. Yeah, and then otherwise, though, I think just in terms of fleet numbers, you know, motorcycles the most common vehicle in this region. In Kenya, there's a lot of four wheelers. Maybe it's one to one ratio. But in Uganda, I mean, motorcycles are probably seventy percent of the vehicles on the road. So that combined with the fact that the batteries are smaller and more cheap. Makes as well as the fact that the smaller vehicles have shorter lifespans, meaning they have a higher turnover rate, right? So they're typically lasting four or five years only on the road because they're used very intensively. They're driven 100, 120 kilometers a day, and so that means that、uh, that segment of two and three wheelers are going to be the the primary driving force for electrification、uh, in the region. Wow, that's a variety of vehicles, and I can imagine that it's easier for three wheelers to be electrified because they have smaller batteries and are lighter and can go further and less energy. But it's also exciting to hear that they're starting to electrify minibuses, and it's starting to be successful in some startups. So great news! And then you already hinted on the Western funders, and I can imagine that. Many agencies and、uh, stakeholders are involved in、um, the electrification, so that we have the vehicle operators and then the associations, the governments, the authorities, and of course the vehicle users and the group of commuters. So, who are the main players for the transition towards more e-mobility? Maybe also looking at the approach to more geopolitical independence, who we could work with from the local side. Yeah, that's a good question, and I think you called out the important ones, right? So, certainly, government regulators, and then kind of a half step away are the political elites, the politicians, who can then call attention to these issues, right? So, it wasn't really noticed by government in Uganda until maybe mid last year, and now it's featuring in seemingly every other speech by the president, which helps with public awareness and whatnot. Then there's, of course, the companies themselves, right? The ones bringing it in, the startups. So, like I mentioned, a lot of them are kind of classic startups in the vein of all the tech startups that have come up in the region.、Um, but there are also a handful of direct importers who are quite interesting because they have kind of less overhead and sometimes more understanding of the local market. Who, who we'll see what happens with them. Then there's, of course, the associations. So the associations. Because they're kind of politically compromised in many in many cases, not all. It makes it a little difficult for a lot of people to engage with them from the company side. So some of these associations are very interested in it.、Um, I know Motorbota Safety Association of Kenya is very interested in, in bringing about electrification of of two wheelers and three wheelers. But that landscape looks different everywhere. And then there's of course the the owners of these vehicles. But like I mentioned, it's. Mostly moving away from an owner rental model to a, a lease to own or a financed model, right? For the drivers to become owners, and all of these electric two wheeler startups so far that I've ever spoken to, so more than thirty or so, all of them are partnering with financial institutions, and so they're helping drive that movement away from the owners. And so the owners are really Kind of losing power. I mean, I don't know what that will mean politically, but I'm, I'm very curious to see. And then, of course, the drivers. You know, the drivers are very, very key here. So it's the drivers who decide、uh, whether to to pick up these these vehicles. And so, of course, the early drivers are always going to be you know early adopter types, right?、Um, they they a lot of the time they they do their research on the topic. They find it very interesting. They test them out. 
They learn what they can, they pick them up, and they're willing to take that risk. They also have you know, the vision to do so, um, and I think we should give them more credit. And they're, of course, very key there for in terms of actually driving adoption. And then when it comes down to kind of public awareness of electric mobility, I mean, I think in many ways, most of the population still sees that as like a, you know, a rich people thing or like a, a thing that's happening in Europe and not necessarily in Africa. But increasingly, um, and certainly I get people asking me all the time, what do you mean electric vehicles? Like We're not going to have that in Africa for years. But obviously, places like Nairobi are, are, are ahead on that. And it's increasingly well known that there's these local startups trying to do these, trying to bring these about. And what happens a lot of the time, too, is that these uh, local startups do almost no advertising. And instead, it falls on the, the drivers themselves who make little TikTok videos, they make little videos on WhatsApp, they put them in these WhatsApp groups with dozens or hundreds of other drivers. And that's how drivers are learning about them. So we did a survey in Kampala not long ago, about a year ago now. And so while there's only like four or 500 electric motorcycles out of 200,000, about 95% of drivers in Kampala said they had heard of electric motorcycles in Kampala. So the, the organic word of mouth is how it gets about. And that's, again, the drivers. Yeah. And then, you know, I'd also like to point out as well, in terms of founders, it's not all Western founders. There's a number of great locally led uh, companies. Um, folks like Mazi Mobility and EcoBoda and Emoboda Boda and, and many, many more. And, you know, they, they're, they're doing some great things and using their own understanding of the market to get kind of an edge there. But yeah, so definitely government stakeholders, it's the, the local owners, it's the drivers, it's the companies. There's a lot of folks at this table. There's also, of course, because we're talking about Africa, there's development groups, you know, NGOs and development finance organizations and development institutions and so on that are also at this table um, financing or, or helping push these conversations along one way or another. Um, so, yeah, quite wide group of stakeholders at these tables. Mm -hmm. It's very exciting to hear that it's not just the companies or the government, but the drivers themselves who promote the electrification of vehicles. And talking about the vehicle owners, could you point out, is it beneficial to vehicle owners to pick up EVs, even when the infrastructure is maybe not fully established, especially looking at charging points and the grid for power provision? I would like to say yes. I would like to say yes. It depends, of course, if this owner is doing it for um, personal usage or if they're, they're renting it out to make, a, make an earning. But in general, I mean, when I talk with drivers in Tanzania who are using the little link all electric scooters, they love it. I mean, they save so much money on electricity on, on, you know, by not paying for fuel and so on. So I think that there's, there's already a strong case to be made. Obviously, we're also thinking geographically here, right? Uh, in the capital cities is where most of the money is. It's where people who have the income to be buying an electric vehicle are. And it's also where the electricity grid is best. So that all kind of lines up already. And so, you know, people can buy uh, a, a Nissan Leaf here and get, you know, comes with the charger. They can set it up at home, charge it overnight. And it's really not an issue generally. So I think it's, it's pretty much ready in the urban areas. Now, the rural areas are where it's going to take longer. And it's because, A, electrification hasn't really reached many of them, especially in Uganda and Tanzania. They're a little bit more behind in terms of electrification of rural areas. 
It's also lower incomes in rural areas. And then the density factor is also a major issue, you know? Uh, it means that if you're building a battery swap network for a city, uh, it doesn't have to be so many swap stations to cover a higher number of drivers because everything is so tightly packed together, right? Urbanism 101, many of us love density, right? But in rural areas, um, you have fewer people farther apart, and that means there's going to be fewer, fewer swap or charging stations, and it's going to be a little bit more challenging for the drivers. And so for all of those reasons, I expect rural electrification to take you know, a good deal longer than urban electrification here. Yeah, that definitely makes sense that there's a difference between owning a vehicle in a capital or in rural areas. But either way, it's great to hear that vehicle owners can save money transforming to electric mobility. So that's good news. And I have one final question for you. What are your personal hopes and wishes for the informal transport sector on the African continent for the future? Wow, that's a very big question. <laughs> that's a very, very big question. <laughs> yeah, maybe you just have some final remarks. Sure. I mean, you know, obviously what I would like to see is I would like to see effective regulation. So what Rwanda has done is, uh, in terms of, you know, the motorcycle taxis is, is very impressive. Ultimately, there are significant political obstacles, uh, especially around relationships with the police. That's going to be a big sticking point for a long time to come in many of these countries, Right. So there's only a few places like Rwanda where the police really are that closely aligned with what the state says it wants to do <laughs> and that the drivers therefore listen to the police. So I would like to see, without becoming as um, much of an iron fist as the Rwandan state is, I would like to see more effective regulation and enforcement in, in a lot of these countries. I think what's also really important, really, really important is genuinely driver-led associations, you know, they need to have a voice that they can come together on, whether it's Bodas, whether it's Tuk-Tuks, whether it's Matatus, they need to be able to, to come together and have a, a unified voice with government to discuss regulation, to discuss what's best. And that means that there needs to be a bit of a depoliticization of the sector, and there needs to be strong grassroots movements by, by drivers that do not involve politically connected elites, um, because that ends up complicating and, and ultimately undermining a lot of attempts at reform. I also really just want to see, you know, the massive growth of electric mobility. I'm obviously hugely biased, right, at the Association for Electric Mobility and Development in Africa. We're, we're, we're very much pushing for that. I think about it all the time when I walk down the road here in Nairobi, the, the fumes, right, the fumes from the matatus and from the cars and everything. We need all of that to go electric because there are a lot of people who are quietly developing lung problems and dying at a young age, uh, completely unnecessarily. And so I would really like to see that. Finally, of course, you know, there are very legitimate concerns around road safety, uh, especially for motorcycles. You know, there's a need, uh, and I think this requires that improvement in regulation and that improvement in association and organizations. There's a need to improve road safety and there's a need for everybody to kind of pick up on that and, and believe in it from the passengers to the drivers, to the police, to the government. And so I'd really like to see that. And, and finally, what I'd like to see is kind of a little bit more recognition from government on the kind of utility and role of motorcycle taxis, particularly because in my view, there's a very strong class element to the way in which they are marginalized. They are banned completely erratically. They are treated as if they have no place in the city, right? Um, you know, they're startup founders here who you know, start driving their own motorcycles around and they're surprised by how terribly the car drivers treat them. 
So I, I would like to see a little bit of an improvement in that and a little bit more recognition of, of the role and danger that these, these guys live with and uh, take part in. So I, I would like to see a little bit more of that as well. So a wide variety of, of desires for myself here, but I'm very hopeful in, you know, the, the ingenuity of Ugandans and Kenyans and Sierra Leoneans and, and everybody across the continent to come to solutions that, that work best for everyone. Wow, thank you. That's it's great to hear that you're optimistic about improving the system. And many countries have come far with electrification, but there's still a way to go with driver-led associations and road safety and the recognition for drivers. So that's important to point out. And I think that that's a good base for building up a resilient and strong transport system that serves everyone's needs. So thank you for pointing that out. Thank you. So I think we're already at the end of our session and we've heard a lot of interesting and inspiring experiences and concepts from your sites. And we'll make sure to put further material into our show notes to access for everyone. To you, Tom, thank you for being a part of this episode. It's been a pleasure to have you here and to get to know you and hear all your insights about informal transport in Eastern Africa. And I learned a lot and I think our listeners did as well. So thanks. Thank you so much, Carolyn. It was a real pleasure to be here and, and chat about it. So thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Tom, for sharing your expertise with us. This really helps us to better understand how the informal transport system works in order to catalyze the right approaches for improving and decarbonizing the system. To all of you, if you want to dive deeper into the topic, check out Tom's Lubianza blog and further materials. Also, feel free to visit our Tumi website, where we compile lots of helpful resources around the issue of transforming urban mobility and all relevant links in the show notes of this podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, thanks for tuning in and see you next time.